All right, and we are live. Welcome to another um, episode of Absolute AppSec. This is episode number three. And tonight we're joined by Jerry Gamblin. Uh, there's Jerry. Uh, I think, what, I mean, when it comes to Jerry, he's played uh, a, lo a lot of, uh, I would call it blue team defense. He's got a lot of good insights. We're going to talk about um, some of his thoughts on things like bug bounties tonight. And, uh, but if you've watched Jerry online uh, on his, his Twitter account or you've watched some of the GitHub repos he's thrown up, Jerry, you're always messing with something like for a while there, you're hammering on Docker, but it seems like you'll go like, Oh, you'll go hide for a weekend and uh, like write code and surface on Monday with some cool project you did over the weekend. That that's the plan. Like that's the way. That's the way I learn, right? It's like here's something I don't know about. Let me go and figure out and like figure out security. Let me write some code that's probably not going to work the best, and and then move on to the next thing. It's yeah. Docker was fun for six months, and now I'm onto the cloud. So so which is better? Do you prefer Docker? Do you prefer the cloud? I, I mean, we, we should probably let you give a you know good introduction of yourself too, right? I mean, we're we're both impressed, obviously, but go ahead and you know give us a rundown. So I'm Jerry Gamblin. I run the technical security team at a company that sells car data. It's not that hard to figure it out if you have Google, but yeah. So I, I just kind of help them uh, move securely as we we go from our data centers to the cloud to whatever's next. So I'm always getting to play with new things and big data. So it, it's fun to be in that world, and it's fun to it's fun to try to move at the speed of business versus trying to move at the speed of government, which was my last gig. I uh, I don't think I don't even think I, you want to get well. I mean. I guess, like, thoughts? I'm actually curious. Like, what are your thoughts on government, uh, you know? Like, surprisingly enough, my background, I haven't done a lot of government work, right? I know in some of the consulting businesses that I've been in, like, I've done the project here and there. And I was never super impressed with, like, going into that space and trying to perform some sort of an application security assessment. It was just always almost an afterthought, but you know, with your background and Jerry's background, you probably have more insight into that and how it actually operates as opposed to what I like. I can speak more to like the banking sector. Yeah. The, the financial sector, yeah, the yeah. financial sector than I can to the government sector or fraud. You know, you can speak to that. So Jerry, I mean, in a nutshell, what was your, what was your experience with the government? I can certainly give mine, but if you're willing to share, we'd love to hear yours. Mine's just the government's no budget all the time you can use for a project and business is no time and all the budget you can use for a project most of the time. So it's, it's almost flipped, right? Like I haven't found that perfect, you have enough time to do the project and all the budget you need, right? So if you guys know any industries that's like that, that's probably where I should land next. <laughs> um, I mean, I'd say mine's, probably like more cynical than that. Um, basically in my experience with government, like not GS, but government contracting is that it was kind of a race to the bottom at times. Um, 
basically you've got the same people rotated through different companies, each company trying to bid less. So therefore pay less. And yeah, that's just my experience. Uh, so left that world a while, a while back and you know, never looking back. Um, not, not a fan of, of working. Not, not, not to say anything against those that do work in that industry. It's just not for me. So, and I'm sure that it, it, everybody's experiences vary, but that was mine. So. Yeah. It's probably got to depend a lot on the, you know, the division that you're working for and, you know, the experience that you're getting in there. Um, I mean, I would, I, you know, like any large organization. Yeah. But, you know, if you don't have the money to actually do any of the projects, it's very difficult. And that's like in the consulting space, that's what I found is they typically didn't, nece- they didn't necessarily want to pay up as much, right, for the activities that the, the commercial industri- industries would pay for. Uh, I mean, I, I think that's what Jerry's getting at with they have no money, right? That makes sense. Uh, sorry, I'm, I'm reading some of the, the live chat comments. I just got in there and I think that they're temporal. So I'm fairly certain that if there were live chat questions asked other than uh, um, the one I see here, just one, uh, then like, uh, re- I guess I'm saying ask them again. So, oh, and you know what? By the way, I should probably point out if you can't tell, so Seth is out of Utah, by the way, and uh, I'm in Virginia, and Seth happens to be out here, and so we're at my kitchen table tonight, um, podcasting from the same room. So, uh, by the way, probably well, that was your call time. Oh. What was that? Sorry, I accidentally streamed the live stream I was on. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that happens. I'm trying to. Usually I've got like an external monitor to watch all this stuff. And uh, so like live chat, uh, the watch page, and then, you know, th- this hangout uh, screen. But tonight it's all in one. So trying to keep up with everything and checking emails and all that. So anyways, so uh, yeah, I mean, I know we got a few topics to get into tonight, Jerry. Um, but let's start off with the one I think that is like near and dear to your heart. Uh, and I know Seth and I both have stories as well, so it should be an interesting topic, which is bug bounties. Um, so, Jerry, <laughs> what do you think of bug bounties? <laughs> that That's an interesting question. I, I think that they have their place. I think that you need to separate a bug bounty from a, you know, a disclosure program, a place for people to to tell you about your vulnerabilities. But a bug bounty, as they're kind of constructed now, in the Uber model, I don't know who they're fair to. Like, so you have a researcher, you only pay them when they find something. You have a company who is paying out mostly, from what I've seen, from people I talk to, low-level bugs. So the only people who seem to really be making Money on this are the people running the programs, the hacker ones, the bug, the you know the bug crowds, those companies. So it's kind of one of those things. I, I understand what you need them for. I just haven't seen anybody who's willing to say that that they have a, had a great experience with them. That's fair, you know. And what what I'll what I'll say is, so like I had no. 
um, from your perspective from like the um, defensive side until you know last like four months on like having a bug bounty program, working with researchers, working with the bug bounty. Um, and, and it's no secret, like uh, the company I work for markets it, Hacker One markets it. And what I'll say is like, there's, there's definitely like a percentage of um, like duplicate submissions, out of scope submissions, some that are just straight up uh, like automated spam, um, you know, just cruft. And then there, is, there are uh, ones that are like, oh, that's interesting. And sometimes even like um, a little out of scope, but, uh, you know, interesting nonetheless. Um, and then there, there are submissions that are like, hey, that's a really valid submission. We, I mean, we pay pretty well to, to the researcher. Now, that having been said, I just see what we award the researcher. Like, I don't like obviously see what the researcher gets. I would, I would hope that it's the same amount that we're, you know, telling them that we're uh, paying out, but uh, I don't know. Like, I don't run the, like, I don't know how much it costs us. I don't know any of that. So uh, just from a tr- somebody who's triaging these on a daily basis, like you definitely get a good percentage of craft, but then like you do definitely get some good submissions and, you know, depending on the company, like, you know, obviously more, some companies pay better than others. But what I'll, what I'll say from the flip side of that, and like, I know you can speak to this from the researcher side of it. Yeah. So like both Seth and I did, um, participate in like a, we participated in like a, uh, white glove bug bounty or did, and, uh, still does did. Um, and like what, what, uh, what I'll say is that honestly, as a professional, you can, and by the way, when I say white glove bug bounty, I mean, these are, these are actual professionals who've been vetted, not just anybody who can sign up off the internet. Uh, there's like an interview process, background checks, all that. And, um, but what I can say is like, it's cool if you like want to just spend four hours or whatever, but in terms of like being a, um, being a big money maker, no, like, I, I mean, you and I, I mean, easily anybody who's done this, Jerry yourself, who wants to pick up 1099 work because somebody needs an assessment done or needs whatever, like you can do that in, you know, one week, two week project and make a hell of a lot more than a bug bounty. Yeah. The amount of time that's, that's what it comes down to is uh, like, like the time to pay out uh, trade off um, is, is what I have a hard time justifying. Right is, you know, I can go teach a training course, I can go, you know, do a thousand other things. So yeah, the bug bounty is, you know, interesting to me, um, especially the white glove ones where it is more vetted, you do see a little, you, you do see more interesting projects in there than probably some of the public ones. Yeah, it's enjoyable. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's, there's interesting things that are popping up. Um, but then I also start to wonder about the quality of the bugs again, even from the white glove and what's actually getting pushed in it, you know, yeah. number one, you know, it's, it's traditionally got the the time frame around it. It's not like an open-ended bug bounty, let alone, like a lot of the big companies run. So, you know, a two week assessment, if, if I've aren't already engaged, I'm already doing something else. I'm probably going to ignore it, even though it's a white glove service because it's not my only source of income. And then it's also a race to release your bug is really what it feels like. Yeah, I mean, you're definitely because that's a good point. When these come out, you've got like you've got to hammer it. 
you know, if a new functionality, if new functionality is released and you get a notice on it, or if new targets um, come out, then you have to jump on it. And like, you know, you got soccer practice. I've got my kids karate. I've got my, you know, things going on. So it's, it's like hard to jump on that. Well, there's a comment on that. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Jerry. I was saying there's like eight other people doing the same thing, right? So somebody is wasting their cycles at, at the end of that, right? So it just doesn't seem, I mean, I understand the paper results thing, but I don't think, I mean, it'd be interesting to see a good study if you took the amount of time, what a bug bounty researcher actually makes per bug, right? Like if you broke down that kind of fluff time that, you know, that they're looking and didn't find anything. Because at the end of the day, if you spend four hours and don't find anything, you've made zero dollars. But, you know, nobody has a way to justify that. The the person running the research program, you know, the, the company with the bounty program can't say, you know, I had somebody look at this for four hours because those hours are just lost to them. The researcher just goes to bed tired with no money. So everybody's, nobody wins in that situation. Yeah, I mean, it's got to be frustrating to both, the, you know, to all parties, like you said. The, uh, I mean, like some of the some of the the stuff I've seen. Uh, basically, there's no way it didn't take a lot of time. When I say like a lot of time, at least a week of, you know, a week or two weeks for the really good bugs, for the ones that pay out for as much as just saying like, hey, I'm going to do a week of. Uh, testing where I know for a fact I'm going to get paid at the end of the day. Um, so I don't know. I mean, is it, I'd be curious to hear any of our, if like anybody watching this has done a bug bounty and is a like professionally, like has the option of doing a 1099, but for whatever reason prefers the bug bounty. I'd be interested in hearing that for sure. Yeah. Somebody had a good comment about the, you know, bug bounties are good for the, the countries or the people that are in countries where the cost or the, the cost of living isn't as great, right? For example, in India, thanks for that. Cause that's absolutely right. Right. And I think we do see quite a few of those reports coming out of places that aren't the traditional, you know, security space, at least in the U S. Oh yeah. No, 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 definitely. You're right. I mean, um, and then, so, well, and then, oh, and by the way, I want to back up for a second. When I said white glove, because there's a, there's, there can be some confusion there. Um, and actually, I'm curious if you've had this, uh, Jerry, like white glove can also mean through those bug bounties. Like some people use the term interchangeably for bug bounties that are your bug crowds, your hacker ones, anybody can sign up. But then that's a service within those companies where they, basically filter out all the cruft for you, do as much validation as they can before uh, submission actually gets up to you. Because if you're on a one, two, three person team, like that's a, I mean. Yeah, we I've, do validation services through through our bounty provider. And, it, and it's nice. Um, it still gets to the point though that it's it's hard, right? Like you do get those three or four bugs a year and you're like, wow, that that's an amazing bug. Like that person deserves the, the time and then the other times it's it's you know it's stuff you missed it'll if you miss input validation you'll you'll figure that out pretty quick or if you have something like it's and, and you're right it's hard right because if you release a new if you release a new something in scope it's going to get a lot of submissions right up front and we don't have a big team and and 
it's not only me, but the people I've talked to, the problem that they have with bug bounties is the cycles. Because uh, if when do your bugs come in on your bug bounty programs? I mean, for us, it's, it is Monday through Monday. But when you talk about like massive amounts, uh, yeah, it's pretty much what you'd expect Friday through Monday, right? Like those are the heaviest times of the week where you see submissions. Yep. So Friday through Monday and then on, on big breaks, right? Like over Christmas, like, like the holidays, you get those. And it's not the security team as much as it is the dev teams because you're signing your dev teams up for getting called in for stuff. And they're like, so we run this bounty program and somebody found this on, you know, the day after Christmas. So I have to get called in. And, and while it's their job, they, they don't see that as a, as a net positive a lot of times. Yeah, <laughs> that can be I just, it, well, okay. And here's what I'll say, like helps if you, so like, you know, cause you can do with these bounties, you can do like common responses, right? So to like quickly send a response saying like, Hey, this is whatever, like it's out of scope. It's known. It's whatever. Uh, we handle it in this way. Um, so you can do that. And then, um, uh, you can also automate with like chat ops and various, I mean, that's the one I know of chat ops uh, to tackle it, but um, still doesn't alleviate the fact that when you are like, is this real? It takes time. It takes time to, to, to look through and say like, you know, if it's not, if it's not obvious, just like completely obvious, you can throw it away. It can be time consuming. And, and again, like if you've got the team for it, cool. But if you don't, I don't, I don't honestly know how, like, I don't, I don't know how you're doing, how you're, how you're dealing with it. So. Yeah. I mean, from a researcher perspective, I mean, obviously like we're getting quite a bit of uptake when researchers actually have the time and they're viewing it as a, as a side moneymaker, right? Right. You've got like a lot of people that are moonlighting that are probably in the security industry or already doing something. And so that's where the bug bounty programs are like pointing people at different locations. So number one, when it, when it starts, when it first comes out, um, it's like, it's got to take over your life. If you want to, you know, you want to get that initial wave of funding or whatever that's coming out of that company. And then number two, you've really got to dig in. I mean, what I found is I log in and if there's not anything that's like, really obvious low hanging fruit that I can start to pick at within the first half an hour. And this is where the value prop comes in for me is it's like, all right, I'm going to move on because there's another 50 of them that I can go look at. Yeah. You got a little checklist and I've heard that too, where there's like, so the most successful bug bounty hunters have a checklist and then that's what they go off of. And they're like, boom, does this, does this site, does this app have it, you know, one by one by one. And if, you know, one of those might pop and, then it becomes worth it. But if, uh, but yeah, if it's, if you're, if you don't have that checklist and you're kind of not like going from one to one, you have to do, a, you have to focus and really like pare down on how does the app, I mean, it's just like when we do tests, right? We got to yep. understand how an application works first. Like that's the most important thing. Like what is the business purpose for this? Because that's where you find your most interesting, you know, authorization bugs. And those are the kinds of things that, and you discover more functionality and maybe there's more, points of attack within the application because you've gone through and, and discovered how everything works and where, where, where everywhere is that where you can go. So yeah, time, it's just time. Yeah, it, it is. And I, I don't feel like it's a bad, 
it's not necessarily a bad thing, but I do find that there's that long tail of vulnerabilities, as I call them, that are like the low hanging, well, not the low hanging fruit, but the stuff that is, it's not high severity or it's not high risk. And it's probably a good thing for most people to take care of that and most applications, but the bug bounties just aren't concerned, right? They don't necessarily give, they don't care about it. Give me one sec. <laughs> Lucy. <laughs> Shh. Sorry. This is what you get when you're at my house. Yeah. We've got a cat running around. She's a Bahraini Dillman cat. And if you know anything about those cats, they're crazy. And this is Jerry's cat. I blame Jerry. <laughs> it's it Jerry's is. fault. Yeah. So we don't hear anything. Yeah. <laughs> so what, and what I missed and I would always pay for is the ability to have a researcher run a bug bounty program where I could pay him for his time. Right. Because having the time, like if say, say you had that one person who was just killer on cross-site scripting or authorization bugs, paying for him for his time to have him hit your web app to say, no, I couldn't get in is just as valuable as paying, you know, paying for negative sometimes is just as value as valuable as paying for a positive, right? Like, don't tell me where my web app's broken, but, you know, somehow prove to me that you spent two hours or four hours, you know, trying, trying to get in my web app and I'll be happy to pay you just like, I mean, the same reason you pay or pay somebody who's doing 1099 web app consulting, I would almost be willing to pay a researcher for that, right? I would yeah. be. As long as they're reputable, right? I mean, as long as they're reputable and it is the same, it is, and that, and that's the thing is like, it's basically 1099, you know, but. I mean, because you ask people who run bug design programs, like how often do researchers look at your website and most of them can't give you, you know, you know, so you got 10 bugs. Was that a thousand hours worth of somebody of, of, of the community looking at your website or was that a hundred hours? You know, what's your, What's your time, right? When you do a regular app tech consulting gig, I know like, okay, so this is a three week gig. So 120 hours at the end of the, the time I get to report and say, okay, they found five bugs. So, you know, we're doing pretty good. So you can kind of start to judge how secure you're by bugs to the to time spent, right? And you want that to get less and less. So at some point, you know, I, I know, I know not everybody's this way, but if I send an app out to be tested and it comes back with three bugs, I'm not mad that I spent all that money for three for them to find three bugs. I'm like, yeah, we're doing a much better job now, right? That's an interesting yeah. <laughs> coming coming from the consulting side. I mean, Jerry, that's great to hear, right? <laughs> but from the consulting side, there's there's kind of nothing more demoralizing to a consultant, especially like the junior level that haven't been around the block, haven't been on a dev team, to get into an app and then say, you know, they only find one thing, right? Or and even oh, then, I mean, like some, it's so, not just junior. I'll, I mean, that's straight up depression <laughs> at, at times for for. Um, I mean, if you've seen that, the comic with the graph on yeah. like, what a pen test is like, it's like it, the whole thing is like, oh, I suck, I suck, I suck. Wow, I found all this stuff and I don't have time to document it, right? <laughs> and that, that's, that, that's really what happens. Um, but I, like to your point, though, like when I've been in, embedded in an organization, that's what I want to see. I want to see the number of bugs in my code decrease over time, right? Um, so, I mean, it, it's kind of a weird dichotomy because you know on the one hand who, who do you want to disappoint most do you want the security researcher or the security consultant to be disappointed or do you want the uh, you know the developers to 
you don't want to add more to their plate than that's that doesn't really have anything to do with their job or you don't want to add like extra bugs. And that's why I get like the, the bug bounties. They always have like a list of, Hey, guess what? We don't care about security headers or we don't care about yeah, out, of scope know, stuff. out of scope stuff, but the list gets so long at times that I'm like, all right, maybe they should at least acknowledge that it's there. Right. I mean, that that's one place that you could probably get the feedback that someone has spent time on your application. Yeah. But again, you've got to have somebody in the organization to be able to take care of that, or you have to pay the bug bounty runner uh, the you know for them to actually go in and check that stuff out. Right? At some level, somebody's got to triage those those bugs. Yeah, I mean, at a certain point, you know, with that out of scope list, it becomes almost like uh, if you're not sending command, like some of these are, if you're not basically sending remote code execution, command injection, SQL injection, you know, whatever injection. Uh, Basically, anything that's not like serious pwnage, like you completely can wreck this this app, um, then like it's off the it's out of the scope. And that's not all, but it's definitely some. And but like, then there wouldn't be anybody in scope, right? Like coming from the other side, like people are missing their headers. They don't have their headers on there because they're hard to put on legacy apps. So if you took those companies out, like if you just use that as a walk-in module, right? Like if you have to have a list of stuff out of scope that big, you probably shouldn't be running a bug bounty program, right? So then you start yeah. cutting things down because I'm I'm under the, the impression that that the number of companies that should be running bug bounty programs aren't are you know is probably ten percent of the ones that do, right? Because yeah, you do see those lists, right? And that means that they have all that because those exclusion lists are just technical debt lists that, that they haven't got, right? <laughs> it's the bug like list <laughs> straight out of GitHub. <laughs> just, just, cha- just change it from out of scope to technical debt. I like it. It's a, it's a good way to look at it. No, and I, I, I was going to uh, reiterate, I, like, I, I think you're right as far as like the companies that are running the bug bounty. Um, I mean, I, I realize that those companies have got to make their margins and things on top of that as well. Um, and they do provide the platform. They hook people up. Um, but the, it'll, the the interesting thing in being one, in one of the white glove or the invite-only invite, invite only services is that a lot of the, the big companies that I have seen come through there, yes, they totally should be running a bug bounty, but the, the applications that get pushed to the bug bounty are those legacy applications, right? Um, and they want to figure out what their risk is, but hey, guess what? We know that all of this stuff is, hey, we know that injection is a, is a huge problem with this application. You can't necessarily take that off the table, right? Because of the attack vector. But some of those other things I still look at when I'm, when I'm researching an app because it does point me in certain directions for other things that they've probably done, right? And then... I, I don't know if you guys even want to get into this, but the S3 bucket on Uber, right? Like, like that just opened up such a huge, such a huge issue with them and researchers. And you know, did that violate the the California Notification Act and and what that does? Like, you see people all over the map on on what that does. Oh yeah, so like, so that was when a. Uh, like are they? I, I don't know if, if they ever made it clear or if anyone knows, but like, uh, so there was um, S3 Bucket 
I, they didn't they obtain a key off uh, wherever their code was stored and uh, yeah. oh, then from access you. from somewhere. <laughs> the cloud. From the cloud, they got a key and then they access S3 and then demanded. Did they like, so was it, I don't, I don't actually know. Was it, was it like a pay us this 50,000 or whatever it was. And then like you get your, I don't, data back I, never, I don't think they ever released that email and I, and I don't think the FBI ever arrested that guy. So I, from my understanding, like saying it was blackmail, it wasn't like go pick this. He's trying to look at his laptop to make sure that he does. So, that, that was the last I saw of it, but the interesting stuff that I saw floating around was if they run a public program put it out there on the internet, how do you say that everybody who's in this public program is there, right? Because the California law says if anybody who's not, you know, who doesn't give permission to look at data access is learned. So that, that ended up being a pretty big we always used to joke about that when I was working for a bank, right? That the, the best way to get around all those regulations was we were just going to open up the database and release it and then notify all the customers and say, uh, guess what? The data is out there. And then we don't have to worry about compliance for everything, which is basically what Uber gets to do now, right? Is that, I, I mean, not really, but yeah, you no. know, it was just like the, the compliance regs were so strict, but you know, to your point, uh, Jerry, the, the, the fact that you don't you don't necessarily vet all of those bug bounty per- participants or the researchers can be a can be a huge problem. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I'm 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 sure it's keeping the lawyers in, well, in the money for I mean, hacker one and bug bug crowd, right? Yeah. Well, that's probably where I mean, it's expensive. I'm sure it's expensive to operate a bug bounty company. Like for that exact reason, there's 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 legal fees, marketing, you know. You and I have run a business before. Like it's it gets expensive. Yeah. Um, oh, and I'm not like I'm not begrudging anybody making money on on bug bounties. Like it's it's the same way. Like when I get in an Uber, like sometimes you feel sorry for the for the Uber guy because you realize that your fifty dollar you know ride from the airport, he's getting twenty bucks of right twenty five dollars of like at the end of the day. So you know it's just that same kind of kind of strategy, right? Like. That's just where my my feelings on this subject. Oh no, and I don't know. Like, I hope nobody out there thought that. Uh, I know we don't. Uh, but yeah, like, you know. And then the one thing with that is that everybody likes. I'm just gonna say it. A lot of people like to shit on Uber because of you know all the things that have come out. So like when that whole thing went down, it was like a dog pile right on on top of them. And I was like, okay, so. On this note, my wife just like two days ago sends me a text and was like, "Oh my god, this com- this uh, it was like a hospital or a healthcare. They paid X amount to hackers." She was like, "I can't believe they paid it." And I'm like, "That shit happens all the time, like all the time. Like it, that, it just it sometimes makes it public and it sometimes doesn't. Um, and I'm not commenting on whether that's right or wrong, uh, but it happens. And uh, I don't know. I just don't." I feel like before all the details were out, people were just jumping on them because they that's what they do. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean it's the the whole industry likes to to 
to shame, right? Um, who was that? Grifter Neil Weiler, in one of his talks, talk, uh, you know, spoke about this: the fact that you know, whenever something like that happens, a big public breach, rather than sharing data or like trying to go figure out why they got breached, the first thing that most of the community does is be like, "Oh, ooh, did we get? Did we get hacked? Did we get hacked." No, ha ha ha! You did. You you screwed everything up, right? Yeah. I mean, we, we point blame, and instead of actually taking it and learning from what's going on, I mean, the guys that are in the in the trenches at those companies most likely had nothing to do with that S three bucket, right? You know? Oh no, Uber, yeah. You know they had nothing to do with it. No, but you know now they're you know they got this mark of shame, even though they 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 shouldn't, right? Right. And realistically, they don't because it wasn't their fault. But that's that's our snap judgment, especially on Twitter. That's what you see pop up pretty quick. It's almost sophomoric. It's it's pretty. Yeah, yeah. Ethics kind of rule the day in, in security. You see this all the time. It's like, oh, you should never play or pay a ransomware, right? Like, nope, you don't do it. This runs it out. And then, you know, if your grandma infects her Windows Seven machine and loses all her pictures, you know, you're over there helping her get the bitcoins to to un you know to pay the ransom, right? Like. We do that all the time. It's it's okay to, to say this is this should be the ethics for everybody until it's your company, and it's like yeah, maybe we'll write that fifty thousand dollars check. Well, yeah, they're they're super smart about their calculations on how much you'll pay, right? Oh, it's yeah. a personal device, and they'll they'll come in. I mean, I know, I know we're getting on to ransomware here, but they're, they're very intelligent about it, and they've got super good. Uh, customer service, right? They respond <laughs> yeah, they, quickly. <laughs> They'll show you where to go to buy your Bitcoin. It's, it's a business. They'll apologize to yeah. you. Oh, I'm sorry that this happened to you, right? You know, <laughs> I, I mean, it's better than most companies, I mean, you know, that, that are out there that you have to deal with on a daily basis. Um, it kind of so roll back. I mean, we can't judge, but we shouldn't be. To roll well, back to three for yes. a minute, um, while we're on this, like, I just kind of had an epiphany the other day and, I threw together some scripts that will spin up about between 60 and 200 common S3 bucket names for your, for your company. So you just run the scripts and it just creates empty secured, secured S3 buckets. Because what I've seen is, you know, if you have your company name slash backup, keep, that's where, that's where, you know, bug bounties and hackers go to look for open buckets. So it's better as a security team just to squat on as many of those as you can. Yeah, I saw that script you wrote. Uh, and again, going back to like the stuff you'll just write over a weekend. And I think it was like this, was it yesterday or, or something along those, like it was recent and you just said, hey, here's this thing I built. And it was a list of basically a way to randomize those bucket names and uh, all that. Sorry, I'm saying all that because I'm trying to plug in a battery thing. A battery thing, technical term. <laughs> battery thing. Power is what it's called. Power. I've heard, but uh, yeah, that's three buckets will end up getting you because everybody knows where to look for, and you know, and they're universal names. So if you can stop somebody from in your company or from using it, you might as well, you know, lock it down. Yeah, and any of those services or any of those scripts that you run, that's I mean, that's the super useful thing that I find about a lot of the the stuff that you're that you're producing. Is the usability factor right? It's not necessarily, hey, I'm going out and I'm looking at bug bounties for this. I'm looking at 
what is my threat profile, right? And, and right. that's where you can tell you're on the def defensive side as you're thinking more about that, right? Um, and then, and I appreciate that as well because most of the tools that we see from the information security side are those offensive tools. They don't care about the aftermath. They're not looking to to productionalize something or actually run it again and again on a weekly basis to discover things. Or if they are, they're holding that close to the chest because they're in a bug bounty program and they want to have that advantage over people rather than, um, yeah, rather than releasing it out to the community. Right? Yeah. I go back and forth between that, between like, sometimes I just want to mess stuff up and sometimes I want to, you know, def well, all the time professionally defend but there's definitely like those times where i just want to mess stuff up so thank you to the jerry's of the world for <laughs> for building some of those defensive tools uh which kind of you know, like while we're talking about s3 and we're talking about the cloud because i know jerry you had some additional thoughts on the i think it was like i don't know if it was the last episode or the, no i think it was the first episode we were talking about uh basically it was about people getting into the industry and we, we had talked a little bit about, um, you know, like sets programming background, uh, pre-security, mine being um, like network engineering, like, and my own programming on my own time. Um, and I think what you want to talk, you kind of want to expand upon that and, and talk about what a, um, like what a, a full stack security person looks like. And, you know, to lead off that conversation, what I'll say is, uh, like, and I, I think I've been saying this for four or five years, uh, especially working with uh, Chris Gates on all these like talks and tools that we've we've done, is that like he's net he 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 was net seg, you know, I'm AppSec, but like our worlds, we were you know, we found like when it comes to infrastructure as code, then being pushed to machines in the cloud, and like. The, the worlds the worlds of NetSec and AppSec sort of merging because now you've got DevOps and you've got, like I said, infrastructure as code. Um, I do agree that you you absolutely have, like, to be good, you have to have, um, and to, like, evolve, you have to have that kind of full stack approach. But uh, interested interest to hear you expand upon that a little bit. I think it's just being full stack doesn't mean you know the full stack. It means you're willing to to learn the full stack. I was reading something today, and it was like, what was the weirdest interview you were ever at? And it said a developer went in, and the the technical part of the interview was building a Tomcat server, right? They, like, set them down in front of a laptop and said, here's an AWS console. We'll be back in an hour. Build a Tomcat server. You know? And, and anybody who can be a developer should be able to find a guide on Google and spin up a reasonably successful Tomcat server in an hour, right? Art Apache server. And it's to, to jump through all those hoops, right? Because that's the only way you're going to be successful in, in any technology industry, you know, re, in the coming future. Yeah. I know there are going to be a few companies where you can be, the switch guy, right? Like you'll be the one guy who turns on switches and set up QoS. But most companies are moving to the to the fact where that you do, you know, you do everything, right? From build the server to deploy the server to write the server, right? I mean, you have to be able to to handle all those roles, and it's just amazing the amount of people that just 
are either scared or just don't want to put in the time and effort to be able to to not only build but be able to secure multiple layers in a in a stack. So let me get your thoughts on this. There are two there are two main schools of thought that I've I've like seen, and they're both hugely at odds with one another. One is that um, you need to be given the time at work to learn those things, and the other is you need to learn that on your own time. Uh, where do you stand on that? Or what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to figure out how to say this because I, I think that people who want to work nine to five are fine. And, and I think that, but you can only do so much in that, in, in that time frame, and, and you're not going to be able to learn and you're going to fall behind. Right. And, and I think it's a little bit, of, of both and to kind of actually wrap back around to the wrap back around to the bug bounty and the gig based economy. That's why I'm kind of glad I have a full-time job, right? Because there's been days where I spent four hours on something. And at the end of the four hours, I'm like, well, that was stupid. None of this works. And, you know, and I did, and I got paid for those four hours, right? Like whatever my salary is, I got paid for those four hours. And, if I was on a you know a gig based or whatever, it would have been like, oh, that's stupid. Well, I guess I'm not you know buying shoes this month or whatever I would have done with that, right? So, I think that it's a little bit of both. I mean, I think you have to be passionate to to get to a certain point, but I also think that that your company should provide the resources to allow you to explore on time, right? Like I know my company provides professional development time, which is four hours a week, so. Oh, nice. Nice. Yeah, and that's higher than I've seen in some companies, right? I mean, I know you've got your Googles of the world where you know 20% of your time or whatever is supposed to be spent on projects and professional development or something outside of your, your day-to-day job. Um, but I, I always kind of go back to the, if you're passionate about it, it bleeds into everything. Um, yeah, you know, I mean, that's true. It does. Especially as you're getting started in a community, you know, I mean, it's a lot easier to do as a, you know, college student or 20 year old professional than it is when you get older and you have more responsibilities and more family and things like that. But I still find like having been in the community for that long, that there are times that I get into a project and it goes for, you know, eight hours a night. Right. You know, and that's, it's just part of being, being in the community and learning a new technology. And if you're excited about it, it doesn't feel like any time. Yeah. Like if you want to do it. Yeah. Not forced to do it. Yeah. Yep. So there, there's two different things. And, and and sometimes your job won't necessarily lead you into that, right? No. Not everyone has that flexibility that Jerry does for four hours a week to go track, trace this stuff down. Um, and so if it is something that you want to learn more about, you're going to have to take the initiative and find the time. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of with you guys. Here's the distinction, like for me, um, is that if it's if it's like work related, uh, like you should be given some some training, right? Like some time to, to like uh, the typical thing you'll see in a consultancy is, hey, uh, we want you to test this uh, app with a language you've never like do a code review on a language you've never seen before. Yeah, right. That's uh, never happened. <laughs> yeah, never. Joking. And if you're never. passionate, if you're passionate, you're gonna learn that by like Monday mm-hmm. over your weekend, right? Like you see that. Uh, that's exploitation, in my opinion. That's exploitation. However, 
uh, I can honestly say I would I, like I consider myself to be and you and Jerry to be in pretty good places in our careers. And, you know, I definitely can say that I, I wouldn't be in that position if I didn't like say, hey, I'm interested in this. I mean, I do it now. Right. Like I've got a, a little e-Kindle. I've got books learning a new programming language as we speak, writing a, a side project, doing, you know, you and I doing this podcast. I mean, like Jerry's building tools left and right, digging into new technologies. Yeah. We all do that because we're interested in it and because we like it and um, certainly helps to be that full stack as Jerry's kind of uh, pointing to and helps ele- definitely helps elevate your career. But I think where, what I, what I get like concerned with is when people say, well, if you're passionate enough, and that's where it gets to be a little bit of, like I said, kind of exploitation when it's like, if you're passionate enough over the weekend, you'll figure this out. You know, again, well, you, said, you said something interesting and you, you, you said, here's a task that you have to do, right? Like, and I think that that's the line. If I say, if, if I give somebody a task that they have to complete over the weekend, that's not passion. That's not on their own time. That, that, that's work. If I give you a problem, and that drives you into to spending time on your own. That's what it's supposed to be, right? Like I take problems home to work on on the weekend, and or like, okay, so here's the problem. We don't know how we're gonna solve this, and my mind's just like, oh, I could do this or this or this or this, and then I come back on Monday and say, you know, here's here's what I thought. And they're like, okay, that's not a problem here anymore. We're not gonna do that. I don't feel like I've lost all that. I don't feel like I've lost all that time because I was interested. I was self motivated to come up with a solution to a problem that was thing that was thing. I wasn't like, Hey, we need you to patch 4,000 servers and you'll do it over the weekend. If you're, you know, if you care about your job, <laughs> that's two different things. Yeah, definitely. I mean, when it's basically it's your choice, you're interested, it's your choice. You want to do it. Uh, you, you, because you like to do it. And I think we've all three, and I'm sure the viewers watching, uh, have been in that situation and are in that situation pretty, pr- pretty fairly regularly, or we're just like interested in a problem. I mean, that's sort of like how all of us kind of, be, I feel probably came into security, you know, we like, this is interesting. And we went that route, but yeah, when it's, when it's forced, um, when it's forced, I guess, is like when it becomes, yeah. Yeah. yeah even though it's interesting or it may be interesting to you at some point, the second that it's a task and it's, it's, it's a job, right? Right. I, I mean, there's something about your brain. It's no longer a you know a carrot, or it's no longer as rewarding because it's not a it, it's not your choice. All it's become is oh great, this is something else that I have to do for work. And if I don't, if I show up on Monday and it's not done, I'm going to be in trouble. So it's introducing more stress on a time that you probably needed to to disconnect. That, I mean, that, yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. Sorry. No, we brought you on to talk, Jerry. So please, I think you see that a lot. Even like people who have to go to conferences for work versus people who get to go to conferences to enjoy the conference, right? Like you, you talk to people who are just flying out to work at a booth. That's not fun for them, right? That's a task. It's like, oh, you're going to Vegas. It's like, yes, I'm going to Vegas for the third time this year. This is, you know, this is no fun versus the the kid who's going to DefCon for his first time, and you know, it's. They're both doing the same thing. It's just how you're doing it. That's absolutely true. And uh, I will say that, like, after you've been to any conference, whether you're attendee and have to work or not, any number of times, like, 
after a while. Well, I shouldn't say any conferences. I should say there are particular conferences that, especially for me, conferences in Vegas that become a little taxing after 48 hours, you know, we'll say 48 hours, 70, anything over 72 hours becomes a little, a little rough, but yeah, you're absolutely right. Like, um, cause I've been there and I know you've been there where you like, we're there to work booths, to make contacts, to provide visibility for the company. And, um, there's nothing wrong with that, but it's definitely a different experience than. Like, yeah. It's, it's definitely work, right? It's work. Yeah. And, you, and you view it in a different light. Um, you know, I mean, some of the most enjoyable conferences that I've been to like personally are, Oh, guess what? I wasn't there for work. I was there. I, I submitted and I, get, I got to speak at something cool. And then I get to go enjoy the conference rather than having to worry about, Hey, now I need to go make 200 contacts with people and try to, you know, try to promote business or something else on the other side. Right. Yeah. But, but that's, a, that, that's exactly to your point, Jerry, is that, you know, there's that, there's that fine line of what is work and what is tasked to you versus what you go and do on your own. So Jerry, let me ask you, what do you think when it comes to uh, full stack or it comes to like, if you had to place a bet for the next two to three years on what security pros should be learning, like what's the, what are the next, what's the, what's your list of things that are going to be important to what, what we call a full stack security person, somebody that bounces between, you so know, all there's, kinds of. That, that's the problem. I think the stack is collapsing, right? Like, um, it's all code. It's all, it's, it's going to, everything's going to be serverless. And that's, so if you don't know a programming language, you better pick one up and it better be node or go, right? Like even, even when we're moving, right? It's like, Oh, we're going to go to the cloud and just stuff naturally becoming serverless because that's the way, you know, GCP and AWS are really pushing people is, is to go to, to, their architecture, so it's just code, it's Lambda functions, and you really need to spend time to learn how to do that. Because there's always gonna be those one-offs that are doing you know, Apache on a server in their data center, but more and more stuff's just gonna become cloud front. Yeah, I agree. Uh, so. It's hard to argue. Yeah, it's hard to, I mean, between, I mean, you're always going to have the legacy apps, like you said, um, but it, it, it's it's also almost a detriment nowadays to actually think you can pick up code that you've developed for one of those legacy architectures and drop it into the cloud and expect it to run efficiently right? or cheaply. Right? You know, if you're really going to the cloud for the reasons that the cloud exists, which is, hey, scalability and expense and all the other things that they talk about, um, forklifting your app that's mm -hmm. 10 years old isn't going to be effective. You know, like for right now, I, I, you know, you're right between serverless and the cloud and containerization. I think those are all like, no doubt things that we're all dealing with now, or a lot of us are dealing with now and you probably will be dealing with if you're not, at, you know, in the near future. But like, you know, what interests me is uh, VR. Like, Cause I, I uh, forced myself to go to, I don't really like CNN.com, but I, I went to it anyways. <laughs> I don't know why. And uh, notice they had like a whole uh, VR section on their app. 
And yeah, I just think that that that's going to be an interesting area because like right now VRs, you know, entertainment purposes and whatnot, but like how long until you're with your doctor virtually or you're um, doing something more sensitive, right? Virtually, like probably not long. And Slack is, has a VR plugin. Is that what you're saying? Right. <laughs> so this podcast is in VR <laughs> next week, Jerry 3D. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think that's, to me, like, that might become a really interesting territory um, to kind of, to see where the security of that goes um, and what the implications will, will be and, like, what other technologies will tie into VR, right? Yeah, I'm, I, so, I don't know exactly what you mean by VR, but, like, I know that, like, I worry about telemedicine IOT stuff, right? Like, like, well, not VR. I know that, you know, your doctor gives you, Hey, here's a, here's a blood cuff monitor, right? Put this on, hit this button and it uploads, you know, it uploads your blood pressure to my, so I can see it every morning so that I can monitor this or like, that's exactly what I'm talking about. When I talk about virtual reality, like that's exactly, imagine that tele, that tele doctor, but doing it, you know, virtually with IOT devices. I mean, like I can really see with between IOT to like have sensory perception and, you know, kind of like the environment, like the environment's there with you plus virtual reality. Like I could see that getting pretty interesting from a security perspective. Like, does that, it sounds like we're pretty much talking about the same thing. Yeah. I mean, and I I think that IOT is going to be huge, but I get like, it's, it's the data, right? I'm laughing because I'm looking because I have my Google Home sitting right here, right? Like, hey, Google. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it exactly. And my son has it, and he asks it 30 times a day to tell it a joke and like to turn on its turn on his lights in its room, right? Like, it's it's his go-to thing, and he's just used to being there. And you know, in the future, that's just going to be more and more. And I think that's where a lot of I can't wait for the first security bug that somebody finds in in a Google Home app, right? Like, you know, figuring out that you can say a command and it'll give you all all the database passwords for somebody, right? Like, I, I really think that that's kind of the next level because all that stuff serverless too, right? Like, I don't know if you spent any time looking at at those programming languages, but yeah, because like Alexa, uh, when you build an oh, damn it. So speaking of, I just turned it on. Um, of course he did. So someone uh, has, is hooked up to, like you said, you can build a Lambda function, and then that's essentially how you plug in your someone to do something on the internet. Is like they're making a call off the Lambda. Yeah. So serverless. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's using all the amazon apis for language processing and everything behind the scenes right I yeah mean, they've now exposed that all to developers outside of amazon but, but uh, definitely that's an, an interesting space i mean even t- like today didn't apple just announced their home pod or whatever which is their siri version of google home or yeah your echoes isn't it amazing how much privacy we're willing to give up for convenience it's seriously astonishing and we're willing uh, to pay for it. And I say it. we, like, I got one over there. Yeah, exactly. We're willing <laughs> yeah. to pay for it. Yeah. 
Cool. Mine's for just research, though. <laughs> Only research purposes. It's not hooked up to your garage door. It definitely doesn't like tell me knock knock jokes because <laughs> that's not its purpose. Well, uh, we're at about yeah, we're not quite at an hour. Uh, Jerry, you're still good to go for a little bit. I'm good. Yeah. Cool. We had um, I don't think we're gonna have time to get into it, um, because I think it's a it's a topic that's a little bit lengthy, which is the whole OWASP top ten debacle. And if anyone doesn't know what we're talking about, there's a lot of there were a lot of uh, there was a lot of like back and forth about it. What'd you say? Like spring of last year it started. Yeah, where there were two. The list was released, like the list of new vulnerabilities was released. Um, and maybe we'll push that to next week because yeah. I think the discussion is going to go longer. And yeah. I mean, I'm sure Jerry has opinions on that as well, though. Right? You want to give us your hot take on the OWASP top 10? Uh, nobody has ever followed 10 rules ever. <laughs> yeah, that's a good. So, <laughs> yeah. So it's, I mean, it, it's too long, like. You know, every management class that I've been to tell people about three things is is about what they can do. So, so I'd be interested in what your, you know, you know, what your absolute AppSec top three is. Definitely. Well, let's say authorization, like, is always a huge, a huge one. Just there's always problems with authorizations or the authorization. Um Here's the things you don't see as often anymore. Uh, well, I don't see as often anymore. I don't like you know about you, but SQL injection and um, cross scripting is always there. But like I don't know, with CSP, there's things you can do to mitigate that. Um, so authorization, insecure direct object reference, pretty common. Yeah, that's authorization, right? Yeah. Right. So, um, I mean, my top three. Right, I, oh, yeah. I, I still find I, I still find input validation, right? In general, right? Whether that leads to injection or whether it leads to some other issue, like input validation is huge, um, and then the, the the trust issues with authorization for sure. Um, I don't know. I like I, I may have to think on that more because. Yeah, it, it varies week to week depending on what I'm seeing in different applications and what I'm dealing with people, right? I, like, like I feel like our trust issues and our trust boundaries are just all screwed up, and we don't think about threats very well in the in the application space. We've got our we've got our top ten list, and we go down that and we check off every one of those, and then we forget about like mass assignment or something like that because it's not on right. my top 10. Which I was going to say, you know, like logic flaws and things like that. But then with mass assignment, IDOR, uh, logic flaws, a lot of times that comes down to authorization, yeah. not understanding the boundary. And, and that, that's the one thing I don't like about the top 10 list, right? E even in this current forum, it, like there's arguments on whether it's an awareness document or what it actually is right. specifying. It's not necessarily coding practices. Some of them are vulnerabilities, some of them are processes, and realistically, we don't get down to the root of the problem, right? If it's if it's for developers, it should go deeper than just saying cross-site scripting, right? Um, right. It's it's got to be there's got to be a root cause to that, to like input validation or you know something that they can actionably do something about, rather than 
you know, just trying to prevent a one-off vulnerability. Yeah, and there are so many MVC frameworks in use. I feel like there should be a list of, here are the top types of things to look for for views, for models, for controllers, because it doesn't matter if it's like, if it's Node and Express or, or well, I guess that's not the greatest example, but although they can, they're can, they often architect, architected in that way, um, and then like Django, uh, Rails, um, I mean, we did some work with MVC.net or .NET MVC. Um, what is, uh, there's another one I'm, th I'm trying to think of. Well, it doesn't matter. All, all of those share the same type of like authorization issues at the controller, right? Pretty common. Models, mass assignment, injection through Concat, although with Django, probably less frequent, but still, like you can still introduce, uh, even with uh, an ORM, an, uh, uh, an ORM or a active record record pattern, you can still in introduce injection. But um, but there's validations that these models provide. And when you go talk about input validation, like when you talk about attributes that get stored in a database, right? Like you can you can perform those validations, and often times are not done well within those models. So you could list that. And then with views, it's you know. The, the typical stuff. It's like the XSS, putting too much logic inside of the view, things like that. And and I'm going to go and just blow this up because I, I think the top three aren't even technical, right? Like, I think I think their ownership, like, tell me who owns all the code in your in, in your company. And and I bet I, I, I would give you guys till next week to find one company of any size that could walk through their their Git repo and say, okay, this team is responsible for this line. This team is responsible for this line and find no orphans, right? Like that, that's one. And then, you know, documentation, like I've, I've worked with a bunch of companies and none of them have fully documented. They're like, okay, can you give me all the endpoints this app has? They're like, uh, here's the war. You can see yourself, right? Like we don't know because somebody wrote one and then left like an endpoint and then, and then maintenance, right? Like I, th I think so many companies are running so fast. They don't get the maintenance cycles they need to, to take care of their software. So I, and you guys might have, because you guys have been around way more developers than I have. I have not met a developer who will say, Oh no, I didn't, I, you know, I think input validation is dumb. I didn't want to put an input validation library. They're like, yeah, I'd love to do that. But, Here's my sprint for this week. I'm I'm tagged up. I don't have any time to do this, right? Like it it's 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 not that that they're maliciously not doing this stuff or don't even know about it. It's that they don't have the cycles to, to Yeah, it, or the library that that library requires broke some of their other libraries, but the, but it comes down to what you're saying, not having cycles like to to troubleshoot that or to figure it out or whatever. It gets um, prioritize differently than like say a feature that's going to make money. Yeah. I mean, that's the, I mean, to your, you know, exactly what you're saying, even just like within the last week, I've had discussion with discussions with developers and we've been talking about their code. They're very security conscious 
and you know they're they're deploying a microservice architecture where they have like hundreds of microservices that to support their application. And I, like when I start to talk to them, I'm like, okay, so where do you see problems? They can point me directly to those services that have SQL injection in them. They know that they're not using like in the node space, they're not using SQLize like they should be, right? It's all raw queries, and they've never been pointed out. They've been never get, they've never been given the ability to go in and actually fix the code or the time to do that. So unless they're going to go do it in their off time, it's just not going to happen. The company doesn't value that high enough. Um, I, I mean, that's almost like an awareness issue for not necessarily developers, but executives and other people. Like it's a risk discussion that needs to be had. Well, and and maybe that's a that's a topic for next time. But how do you sit in a how do you sit in a planning meeting and saying going back and putting in in this SQL injection, you know, this input validation library for SQL is more valuable to the company than, than, you know, building this new feature without doing the, oh no, everything could break and it could be the end of the world. Like, because at the end you can do that once or twice a year, you can have one or two stay on the table and yell moments a year and not get fired. But if you go to every meeting and say security is more important than, than building a new feature, you're not going to be employed very long. No, you're absolutely right. The thankfully, I pick where I work now very carefully for that <laughs> reason, so I don't have to deal with that my day to day. But used to, yes, used to see that. I mean, that's common. And and consulting, we'd walk into how many places and yeah, uh, I mean, and how many places that we would go year after year and find the same things. Yeah, right? it was like they're like, oh yeah, that was. Uh, I mean, you could literally go through last year's report and just say like. I'm going to test all these things. And you're like, Oh my God, this is like the same report from last year, except for also new things. Like, because I had more time, like I spent another 80 (laughs) hours on the app and I just like expanded the list. Right. So they just never get the the time to actually do that. So what should those companies be doing? Like what, like let's ask two of the best app sex security guys. I know if, if you run that back, when do you say, Hey, let me spend this 80 hours to do X to help you improve. What do you, what do you tell a company? Uh, I mean, gosh, I mean like, cause my answer is going to be so cliche, but let's, let's back up. Like where, cause where do you need help? Right? Like in 80 hours, you're not going to um, actually let's, let me figure out what you're asking. Are you asking so what do we say based off the report or what, what do we say? Like as a company, Here's what our thoughts are like on so if you know that you're going to run the same report back. When, when do you say like, okay, let's not spend this X amount of dollars to run this report back again. Cause I know you didn't fix anything. Let me come in and provide X service instead. That'll move your company forward. What, yeah. what service is that? We started doing, you know, fixing code, people's code for them, which is not always like as consultants, we, that's like one thing we realized was, like hell, if you don't have the cycles, pay us. We'll implement security patches, and like if that if you if you like it or you want to tweak it and pull it into your code base, cool. Otherwise, like that's helpful, but that's not a long term solution, and it's also it's not scalable, right? So, um, well, it it just depends. Um, it really does depend. I shouldn't say it's not scalable. What I should say is, I'd rather have the developers long-term making their own patches. Like 
I'd rather them just fix these these issues, right? If it is a developer, sometimes it's not like with headers and things like that. It's actually outside of the developer purview. But there's not, I mean, it's not no easy answer there. I think that it, if it's not fixing your code for you, plus some training to try and get those folks up to snuff so they can do this for themselves. Like there has to be some process of peer review for, for code changes. Um, but in terms of just getting that report fixed, like I would say, look at the report and prioritize. I mean, we can tell you exactly what on that report needs to be prioritized and go from there. If that's, if that's all you want is like, help me fix what's on this report. Cool. We can prioritize, tell you what matters and what you can like push off. Well, yeah, I mean, it, it should already have some sort of prioritization list in there, right? I By mean, we risk. Rank, yeah, we rank that vulnerability report per risk, you know, typically your high, medium, and low. But, I, I mean, that's the direction I would push if, if um, a company is really serious about security and just doesn't have the cycles, then instead of viewing us as a one-off, all right, we're going to come in and tell you what's wrong, let's dig deeper and actually give you the code and you can actually you know, show us what needs to be fixed. And then we can suck that in or at least give that to the developers. So they have a leg up when they go to fix that. I know we've tried to do that in the past with reports, like, like the whole in the recommendations level. themselves. Yeah. yeah. Include uh, a fix in the recommendation because you have access to code you can run it locally. You can patch it locally and show them what it looks like. Yeah. But not, not, not every organization is going to go to that level. Right. And when, when you're talking to those that are just looking for a compliance check, Right? Hey, oh, they're we, like, low, we, fuck off. I'm not getting to you anytime soon. Yeah, <laughs> like, go to lows, lows and mediums. Just go to the backlog, right? Yeah. That's the, that's the common refrain that I see. Um, is it, it? And then it goes to the backlog and it stays there. And I, I mean, for us, unless it, it jumps up to a high severity finding, right. is it really as interesting? Um, and maybe that's where like the scoping from a bug bounty comes into play as well, right? You know, the organization knows it's not going to care about any of that. So why are we paying for it? Well, well the other issue is like, I, I, I hate, like like the one question I hate to being asked is to tell me which of these vulnerabilities I should fix first. And and I don't know, right? Like, like if you, if you think that whatever, that Equifax knew that the struts vulnerability was exploitable on their website and, and didn't fix it, that's one thing, but if it's my opinion that they knew that they had an out of date versions of struts, they didn't have, they didn't have POC code or any, you know, any security person worth his salt with POC code is going to go show somebody and get it fixed. Right. But most people have vulnerable frameworks or vulnerable software running in their network that they don't know how to exploit. And, and you can't, fix everything. So you're like, yeah, okay, we know that needs to be fixed. So it does go in the backlog. But until you have a reason to say, hey, we need to stop what we're doing and fix this, you're just setting yourself up. So answering those what we should fix questions is is just a fool's errand because you know you don't pick the right thing and it's the thing that bites you. You look really dumb. Yeah. And that's assuming you know about that infrastructure because when you've got, because we were talking about the cloud, you know, circling back to the cloud, when you've got 150 AWS accounts throughout your organization, you don't know what all you have. Like if you, if you've got 150 accounts in or plus in AWS and you know what all your assets are and the, the security status of them, like you are amazing and you have just like a, you, you need to come on here and explain how, in fact, if you have that, please come on here and explain to us exactly how you did it. 
so so let me let me do two things a um having multiple accounts in aws it was not designed to do it and b i don't want to turn this into commercial but i just found an amazing tool that that has really helped us uh do exactly that right to kind of manage across those accounts and like uh it's cloud conformity it's a it's a it's a new tool and it runs like three or four hundred checks against everything and we're we're just in the middle of a poc but we 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 like it from from what we've seen now right like it it hooks in with jira and slack and service now by default so Sweet. i don't know i'm looking at it right now well awesome like so that well, fuck, I guess I was wrong. There you go. Jerry <laughs> figured it out. But anyway, Jerry, comes with all the things. <laughs> What's that? Multiple accounts in the cloud isn't, it's not built for that, right? Like organizations and is it, it's ridiculous. And that that's one of the things that I've struggled with as you move to the cloud. It's how to, it's how to be secure across multiple accounts. Yeah. Yeah. Not an easy problem to solve. If anyone solved it, again, please come on this podcast. I'm being serious. Like, there might be somebody out there. I don't know. Um, keep an open mind on these on these things. Well, um, we've kept you on here long enough, and we appreciate your time, Jerry. Um, any parting thoughts you wanted to? Anything you wanted to to, to chat about, or anything you wanted to? Uh... No, I, I just appreciate the time and. I- I appreciate all you guys have done for me and for the community over the last couple of years. It's always good to chat with you guys. Same to you, man. You're always doing awesome stuff, releasing free code all the time. Like you should check out Jerry Gamblin, uh, his uh, GitHub repo, all of his GitHub repos, his Twitter feed, because he's always releasing something. Um, and it's at, uh, I'll put the link in here. It's at uh, Jay Gamblin. Let me put it in here. Yeah. I mean, it's always fun to watch, right? And I mean, it always feels super relevant, Jerry. Like, you know, that's what we appreciate about it is that, you know, it spurs, you know, it, it, it spurs me to do more personally, right? And I think Ken as well. It's, it's, it's kind of a nice feedback loop to see other people actually working on stuff and the problems that they're solving because it's, I mean, we're all trying to save, solve the same things but it, everybody's approach is a little bit different which was nice to see i appreciate that and yeah i just write code for myself and if somebody else can use it that's just always that much better i think i put the wrong link in there sorry folks but i'll uh when we post this uh video I'll also put that in there um apparently the the handle's case sensitive i think is what it is uh anyways thanks jerry really do appreciate you sharing your thoughts and your time Yep. No and next, I think we should mention next week we are going to have Evan Phoenix on or Evan Johnson. Evan Johnson, yeah. Sorry, Evan too Phoenix. many Evans. Yeah, that is a, a, a Rubyist. Uh, but yeah, Evan Evan Johnson. Excuse me. Um, and because well, I think it was last episode uh, we were talking about. Yeah, like I took sleeping pills and we're talking about cores almost at ten o'clock at night and it just it was like garbage. So. He's going to sort that all out with us um, and talk about some of his research. And then we're just going to talk about whatever else. So 
And Jerry, come back on sometime soon. Yes. We'll, we'll chat. You know, I enjoyed this. We enjoyed having you. All right. Thanks, everybody. Have a thanks. good night. Bye.